Adrian Chase throwing on the run, and it is caught. Touchdown, Keenan Allen. What a grab. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, that's what I'm talking about. That's the Warrior spirit right there, boy. Huge sack by Joey Bosa. 90-yard touchdown. 90-yard touchdown. It's going to be picked off at the 8-yard line by Derwin James. Herbert sets his feet, takes a shot downfield, has Knighton. Touchdown, Chargers! That's the greatest throw I've ever seen. Yes, hello, welcome everybody to another edition of the Thunderdown Under Chargers Football Podcast. Andy here, your host with Jack and Alistair as per. And we have taken a break from our 2023 opponent series for a special edition with a very special guest. 74 games and 215 goals in the AFL. He crossed the Pacific. Signed by the Chargers as an undrafted free agent, amassed 159 games across 11 seasons punting in the NFL, all-pro honours in his rookie season, the NFL all-decade punter of the 1990s, San Diego Chargers Hall of Famer. He wore the number two for the Powder Blues, none other than Darren Bennett! Darren Bennett, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with us today. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. How are you going? Good, boys. I didn't like that song when they used to play it during the games, and I still don't like it. So there you go. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Would you have rather we played the Birds of Tokyo rendition of the West Coast Eagles theme song, or is, uh, is that winding the clock back a little too far? Oh. Well, so boys, you didn't you didn't count my four games of the West Coast in my uh, in my bio just there. So it's uh, yeah, it was a quick little yeah, it was a quick little a quick little stint there at West Coast and got injured. So you know, look, boys, it's been a it's been a great a great journey. I want to ask you boys a question: How the hell did you put a Chargers podcast together from Australia? Oh, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. It's awesome. Oh, well, just just a quick way of um of dial, dialing that up, I guess, for you is um. The three of us, we grew up in Melbourne together. And then at the start of the lockdown in 2020, or sorry, just into the lockdown, Jack and his uh, fiance Beck moved over to South Australia, where Jack took a role as a teacher. And so it made catching up at the pub to have a beer and talk charges football a little bit difficult. So we all got onto Microsoft Teams, as everyone did, to have their social fix. And yep. uh, we discovered the record button, uh, had a few beers, and it all just sort of snowballed from there and um we, awesome. we love we we love the football team and we love the sport and uh yeah we just wanted to kind of dip our dip our toes into what it'd be like to talk about it and hopefully uh hopefully what we say makes a bit of sense to the u.s fans and um yeah they can take <laughs> take us seriously as potential sports broadcasters you know how it is that's awesome boys that's really cool it's so cool when when i realized you guys were in australia doing a charges podcast it was just it was awesome so you're the modern version of our georgette rogers who used to work at the charges she was the only person that stayed in the office during the games and every game for about 10 years there was a guy from new south wales used to call at halftime and asked what the score was because he was a huge Chargers fan in Australia. So you guys oh, are the you guys are the you guys are the new internet version of that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. Us, yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure that would have that would have cost a pretty penny back then with the uh, international uh, call surcharge. So yeah. That's that's commitment, absolute commitment. Yeah, Couldn't exactly. wait until the uh, the bold print in the the uh, the Age or the Herald Sun the next morning showing the scores. But um, yeah. 
Yeah, look, it's really fun. Yeah, so like me, I used to watch it. I used to watch it on a Tuesday night, two days after the game. So at least you guys are more real time, which is awesome. Yeah, well, we're we're lucky. We have everything that's uh, provided to us on the internet um, to be able to watch games live. Even it's uh, pretty spectacular if we're up that early on a Monday morning. Um, fair bit to get through. Quite a story of yours, mate. Um, I'm going to throw over to Alistair straight away, and he can get stuck into uh, a little bit about your AFL career. Al, take it away. All right, and Chargers fans, I know you'll all be impatient to get to the NFL section of the conversation, but in order to appreciate how Darren would punt those balls at Qualcomm 60 yards, first we've got to appreciate his 60-metre torpedoes lining up at the MCG. And this is nostalgic for me, Darren, because growing up, my grandpa and dad, my dad are big Melbourne supporters, and I remember as a kid they'd play old videos of the early 90s games against the West Coast Eagles, and they'd always point you out and say, oh, that's... Darren Bennett, he could kick it 60 metres and he went over to the States. So this is a good, really exciting um, opportunity for me. So let's tuck and dive into it. So you grow up in Sydney, you move over to Perth, find yourself at East Fremantle in the Waffle. Did you always want to be a footballer? I did, actually. You know, the Sydney thing was, uh, I was only there till I was six weeks old. So I actually grew up in Melbourne. And so when I played in Melbourne, I, was, I played juniors at Noble Park. And uh, Darren Mullane was on the same same junior team as me. So we had, I think, out of my little league team at South Melbourne, I think we had seven guys playing the AFL. So it was a pretty good foundation starting uh, over there. And then my father went to Perth to, uh, to a business conference, called my mum halfway through and said, I found paradise, we're moving. And literally three weeks later, we packed the house up and moved to Perth. So... I moved over as a 12-year-old and then ended up going through the instrumental juniors and, and into the, the senior team in the 80s. So that's sort of how the Perth transition started. And, and uh, you know, I had a lot of people over the years teach me how to kick the ball along. And my uncle in, uh, in Victoria, he, uh, he actually went down to Melbourne uh, to try out for Carlton when Barry Round went down for Footscray. They were mates in, mm. in Warrigal. And so, uh, you know, he taught me as a young kid how to kick the ball, and I'll be forever thankful he did because it sort of took me a long way. Yeah, it d- it okay. does help when you're six foot five and you've got uh-huh. those long levers to kick the ball uh, as long as absolutely, you did. Absolutely. Always helps. And I love the reference to pants as well, Darren. I'm a big Collingwood fan, so that, that was uh, appreciated. Yeah. And as you say, you, yeah, go, so you go across. Yes, it was a very sad loss. Um, so you go across to WA, always a big kick. And as you said, you're in that inaugural West Coast squad in 1987, just as the Eagles are entering the AFL. So what was, what was the vibe like in Perth at that time? Was there pressure? Were you celebrities? Yeah, so, well, no, not really. I mean, we were quietly working in the background and we sort of, you know, Ron Alexander was my head coach at East Fremantle and he became the first head coach at the Eagles. And Ron really, you know, we, we had a lot of guys like Ross Blendenning that had VFL experience that had come over and played in Melbourne. And so they really tried to instill that extra professionalism, knowing that we were going into an, a brand new AFL, uh, you know, and there was, a, there was a toughness that they thought they needed to instill in us. And, and, you know, it took a few years, but, you know, the talent level of, of all those guys in Perth, combined with the boys that came back from Victoria that had already played in the VFL, it wasn't that long down the track where, and, until West Coast won their first grand, you know, first premiership. And I, I was at Melbourne at that stage, but I still, you know, I actually went to the, the post-game grand final celebration because Andrew Locke is a great mate of mine. And, and so uh, it was sort of weird to be a Melbourne player 
at, at the Eagles celebration, but I could see what they started in 87 had been built into a really good team. And I think they've been one of the best teams over, you know, the last 30 years in the AFL. Absolutely. They're always overrepresented, very talented footballers out in the West. Um, and it's yep. interesting to say that professionalism was brought across. Um, did but, but, you know, you mentioned at the outset, you play one season there, four games, and then you suffer a knee injury and West Coast let you go at the end of the year. Did that, did that come as a bit of a surprise to you? What was, that, what was that like to go through as a young man? No, actually, it was, I mean, it was a surprise to actually, you know, uh, John Todd was the head coach at the time, and I didn't really even know John. I, you know, Tom Hodges, who was our, our rehab and strength and conditioning guy, sort of let me not have to be in the building to rehab my knee. They thought it was a, a career-ending injury, and, and I'll forever be thankful that he let me stay out of the building and go and, and rehab that knee uh, because I felt like it had ended my career. And then Melbourne took a chance on me in 89 and they brought me across to Melbourne to take a look. And my, you know, I'd been, I'd spent the whole two years riding the bike and running in the water at the ocean and doing a lot of alternative training stuff. And I think it made me, you know, stronger for that. And if I stayed in just a football rehab situation, I probably would never have played again. So you know, and the other thing it did was it refreshed my mind, you know, and I, I sort of got a renewed motivation to go and play again. So once Melbourne gave me a shot, I knew I wasn't going to play 15 years at Melbourne. You know, I knew the knees weren't going to carry me that long. Uh, but I got five years in there and I think, you know, I'll be forever thankful for the fact they let me rehab it the way they did. And then I had a strength coach at Melbourne named Chris Jones, who's a legend in strength and conditioning at Melbourne footy club and also, you know, in the rugby situation and he's been at a bunch of teams and Jones is a great mate of mine, but he was the one that made the, the contacts over here in the US for me to get a tryout at the Chargers. Okay, fantastic. Uh, and look, my dad always talks about those early 90s games with Melbourne and, you know, a couple of back-to-back -back losses to the West Coast Eagles in 1990 and 91. He still can't even look at a photograph of Brett Hetty. So, but internally at Melbourne, did you guys did you guys believe you were good enough in those seasons to win it all? Yeah, look, I think the situation, the, the year when Collingwood had that drawn game, I felt like we were the best team in the AFL that year. Uh, and you know that that's the hard thing about finals. If they if you lose, you're down. You know, you're done. So, you know, we just had a bad game that that year, and and uh, it cost us. And that was that was the year they went on. Uh, West Coast went on into the grand final, I think. So, you know, it was it was one of those one of those years. I mean, if you look talk about some of the great wins, it's the 30th anniversary of the great comeback at uh, at Windy Hill. I saw on Facebook yesterday. All the boys were talking about that week, and I've got I've got a mate in Melbourne who's an Essendon fan, and he'll walk out of the room if I ever mention that game. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all I remember is I, I broke I broke, broke Paul Vanderhaar's ribs and. Every time I missed the missed a mark and I was upside down, I could hear the crowd go, oh, and meant Ricky Jackson was running into an open goal. So it worked out pretty <laughs> That's well. Amazing. Oh, amazing. Oh, I'm, I'm, I might just jump in quickly, Al. You've, uh, you've spoken about Collingwood and Essendon. Do you have any – I'm a Saints supporter. Do you have any um, fond tales of belting the pants off the early 90s St Kilda team that uh, <laughs> struggled to get themselves out of the locker rooms? So the only time I remember anything about about uh, St Kilda was when we played at Moorabbin, they would turn the hot water off and we would have to drive back to the Junction Oval covered in mud Unbelievable. and, and have, have a hot shower back at the Junction. That, that does not surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah, it does not surprise me at all. Oh. So 
you know, you, you mentioned before, Darren, you kind of got towards the end of your, you know, AFL career and you, you racked up some incredible achievements. You know, you've kicked eight goals three different times at AFL level. You got to represent WA in the state of origin. But then what else took us through what ultimately drove your decision to retire at the end of 1993? Well, so, you know, that... that... Uh, state of origin game was probably a big one of my biggest mistakes you know because they asked me if I could come up on a Tuesday after playing on the weekend and I you know in hindsight my knees would never do that and I was on a management scheme at Melbourne to try and get me through week to week and there was no way I was going to be able to play on a Tuesday and I don't think you know and and I still remember Ron Alexander yelling at me and I was like, man, I, I just should have said no, I'm not going to be fit you know because it was just such a great honor to be asked to play for Western Australia but you know, that that was that was the that was the we stuck it up on game you know at at the whacker and it was sort of yeah, an embarrassment right. not being able to come up but I sort of knew that I was not going to be fit for that game so in hindsight probably shouldn't have done it but yeah so you know Jonesy and I sat down every off season and he said you think you have enough another season in your legs and so there was that conversation you know at the end of 1992 that I thought that 93 was going to be my final year. And then uh, halfway through the year, they sort of had a, a program at Melbourne where uh, some of our senior guys went to the reserves. He got mentors on kids that became great players. You know, David, David Schwartz and a lot of those guys came through and went up into the ones that year. And then some of them stayed in the twos. And we won the grand final with Andy Goodwin and Graham Yates and Sugar Healy and, and all those guys playing in the twos and, and mentoring those young guys. And so... You know, I think it was a nice way to go out winning the grand final in the resis, knowing that I wasn't, you know, 100% fit at the end of my career. And so, you know, Jonesy, we sat down, had a coffee in South Melbourne after that, and he said, you know, if you want to try this NFL track, I'll, I'll do what I can to help you out. And he did a tremendous job, got me a try it at the Chargers. Wonderful. And Andy's going to now take over to talk, talk through your NFL career. But before he does, Darren, I have five quick hitter questions to throw at you about your <laughs> AFL career, and I want you to give your off-the-cuff response, okay? All uh, right, no worries. They're all going to be off-the-cuff. Okay. <laughs> Best defender you played against? Um, it's always tough, you know, because there was there was so many so many good guys. Oh, geez, I don't know. Tilt, you know, uh, Graham, uh, uh, Carter at, uh, at, at uh, Sydney Swans was always good, you know, so... Yeah. I'll just go with, I'll go with him. Okay. Chris most, Langford was pretty good at Hawthorne too. Yeah. Gun. Right. Most talented teammate you played with? Uh, Sean White. Uh, Sean was a very underrated player. Uh, Plugger used to, and Jason Dunstall hated playing on him. He was such a great athlete. And uh, when, you know, those guys, he would sit off those guys and they thought they were, they were open to take a mark and he would, he would time his jump perfectly every time. And he was a much better athlete than a lot of – he could have played full forward, he could have played full back, he could have played ruck rover. He was uh, – Sean was one of the most naturally gifted guys that we've ever – I've ever seen, you know, at Melbourne. Which coach could give you the best spray? Oh, <laughs> well, okay, so uh, – uh, Percy Johnson, who was my reserves coach at East Fremantle, uh, Percy would have a two a two phase conversation where he'd go, "I'm going to give you a rip," and then he would rip you like you know you'd never been ripped in your life, but he loved you at the same time. So, and I got my first senior game at East 
Fremantle because Percy marched into the selection room and, and stood up for me as a, as a young player. So Percy was great. And then John Northey was a fantastic you know, he was a great motivator. Uh, Swooper used to used to get into it in pregame and you'd sort of want to run through a wall going out onto the G. So uh, I loved his pregame speeches. I thought they were fantastic. Uh, proudest moment or best mo- highlight moment of your AFL career? Oh, geez, it was 30 years ago, boys. I mean, you know. <laughs> uh, um, look, I, I think uh, there, was a, there was a few moments, but... You know, I felt like the, the Melbourne team as a team was a great team of guys. And I, I felt like the first few years I was there, you know, we would kick 14 goals and eight goals, eight guys would kick goals. And I felt like that was a terrific team of guys. So as, a, as an individual moment, I couldn't even tell you one of those individual moments. But I, I felt like that if someone said the best team you ever played on, I would have said those early 90s, like 89, 90, 91 Melbourne team. True to form, very selfless, Darren. And the last question is, did you know that Norm Smith and Fred Fanning are the only two players to kick more goals than you in a season for the Demons? Did you know that about yourself? Well, so I I didn't at the time until everyone used to tell me that all the time. So, yeah, (laughs) at the time, you're just trying to kick a goal, you know, one goal at a time, as the old cliche goes. So I didn't know that until afterwards. Excellent. Right, that was fascinating. Uh, and Chargers fans, now's the bit you've been waiting for. We're going to talk about that transition across the Pacific, as you said, Andy. Take it away. All right. So um, you obviously had it in the back of your mind that with the connections provided by the D's, that there was a chance to move over and play American football. Uh, how quick was the turnaround from your retirement in the AFL to actually starting to step on those start starting to use those stepping stones and um, heading over. And what was the sort of process with you getting over to the States? So it really started, when I first started Melbourne, we, we, um, we played the fastest coming overseas. And one year, I had a long kicking contest in Melbourne at the Green Island. And uh, during the season, we had them. And, and so I was lucky enough to win it a couple of times. And the second time I won it, I beat Ben Graham when Ben was, uh, as a 19-year-old at at, at, at Geelong when he first started in my last year. And the first prize was two tickets to LA. Uh, and so my wife, Rosemary, and I used that at the honeymoon and we went across and that's when I got the try at the Chargers. But my, my journey towards thinking about playing American football, the first time I won the long kick contest, they kept me out at halftime of an exhibition game. We were playing Geelong in Toronto and I punted against Hank Olissick, who was, went on from the Argonauts, the Toronto Argonauts, to be the Chargers punter a couple of years afterwards, you know, coincidentally. But so we stayed out and we had four punts with a Sharon and four punts with a, a Canadian football. And uh, I did pretty well with him. And he's like, mate, you, you should try this. And I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm enjoying playing at Melbourne. You know, went and bought uh, a, a Canadian football uh, downstairs at the hotel we were staying at was a sports store. So I bought a ball and then, you know, per, over the, the off seasons for the next four or five years, I would, if I was traveling or whatever, I'd go punt that thing. And so, you know, the practice really started around there. I did read about you buying a football and practicing wherever you could. Is there, is there truth? No, your wife, Rosemary served as a, a massive rock of support uh, throughout this sort of part of your journey and your whole journey together, of course. But um, is there truth to her shagging your punts as you, uh, you practice, were you kicking them to her and she's 
grabbing them and throwing them back just when you've ever found a park on your journey up the west coast 100 percent, yeah and and when i first got in with the charges rosemary was working for colgate uh in melbourne so she stayed in melbourne while i was practicing and then she came over in sort of may and june in 94 and my special teams coach chuck prefer showed her how to use the jugs machine and told her told her what what he wanted from from me you know outside the numbers and directional punts and stuff and she was a she was a harder taskmaster than Chuck was because she's like, you know, you shank another punt, we're gonna, we're gonna get kicked out of this country, so you better freaking get going. So, you know, it was, it was, it was awesome, you know. And, and I think that's really, she's been as much of this journey as I have, you know. And and it's uh, the support that she gave me when I first started doing this. And Jonesy said, you know, you can possibly do this. We sat and had a conversation, and she said, do you think you could possibly do this? And I said, I think I can. She goes, then go do it. And she did a hundred step behind it from the time. And looking back, it was a crazy conversation. Uh, I'll be forever thankful of trust you made in that. Yeah, well, they do say that behind every great punter is an even better, um, even stronger woman using the jugs machine. So um, that's that's fantastic to see that you <laughs> had you that support. Um, had that support during your journey when you're just not a little bit sure yourself you think you can do it but you know did you do you want to do it um nowadays the aussie punters have to go through the college system obviously to um to get drafted but that wasn't the case you were signed as an undrafted free agent in 1994 how did it all work with uh you being australian coming over and just sort of having a tryout and landing the landing the job eventually yeah, so, I mean, honestly, in the first year, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, you know, didn't even know how to put a helmet and shoulder pads on. And we see that with young boys coming over now that are going into the college system, trying to work out how to do the pads and sort of just making it up as you go along. I didn't know what protections were, what any of the calls were. So I felt like I punted pretty well the first preseason, but I think the step into giving me the starting job was a little bit too big. So they put me on practice squad at the time. And I, I went to the head coach, uh, Bobby Ross, and I said, Coach, look, I'm too old to go on practice, Scott. I said, I'm, I'm 29 years old. And he said, look, you know, he said, I, I was at Kansas City years ago and, and our kicker was 39, our punter was 44. He goes, you can do this for 10 years if you, if you really learn this year. So he, and it was a terrific year for us. It was the year that the Chargers went to the Super Bowl. It was my first year on practice squad. I got to ride that wave of a successful team without the pressure of having to perform on the weekends and I feel like that and my NFL Europe uh, season where they show, I showed them on film that I could catch the snap and I wasn't going to panic and, you know, and I went and played pretty well there uh, was enough for the confidence for them to give me that starting job the following season. So in hindsight, I think that 18 months that it took me to learn that job uh, was, was the best thing and it probably – turned a two-year career into an 11-year career by that extra experience. Yeah, no doubt. I was um, keen to ask if you thought that the the time that you sort of had um, and your experience with the NFL Europe, which is probably a, a rung or two slower than um, the NFL, but uh, nonetheless, just allowing you to, because it's all well and good, you punting at practice when there's no giant men running at you and trying to smash you. Um, and then you're going straight into the NFL where that's that's how it is. Uh, and there's obviously the pressure that mounts on executing those punts and the different styles of punts. Um, was the locker room welcoming to an Aussie in 94? 
How was that? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, if I was called the crocodile Dundee of punting once, I, call, I got called it a thousand times. So Americans, no you know, you guys know. Well, I mean, that's how your podcast exists. Americans are fascinated with Australians. We we sort of think pretty similar in a lot of things, you know, and we speak the same language. So I think there's a real affinity and a fascination with Australia. Now that they right now they think you all have a kangaroo in the next room and there there's twelve spiders and three snakes all trying to kill you guys. But you know that that's part of the fascination of the questions that you get asked over the years. And so you know it's it, it, I, it went both ways. I was fascinated with America and and the US and the whole sporting system, and it was a privilege to be to be able to step into those shoes and see what real professional football looked like. Yeah. Um, just on that 94 season, before I move on to when you're actually the starting punter for the Chargers, what was it like being in, first of all, the practice squad uh, at that time, which you have mentioned, but the practice squad in for a team that made the Super Bowl, um, what was the environment like at the Chargers <sighs> that year, which has been the team's most successful year um, on paper uh, to this point? So I talked about the early 90s Melbourne team being some of the best teams. That that 94 Chargers team was a, an incredible team. There was a lot of messing around in the locker room, but then when they flicked that switch to go to work, they worked hard. And, you know, we had leaders like Junior Seau and, and uh, uh, Courtney Hall and guys like those guys that were just ultimate professionals. And they set the bar very high for the for the team, you know. And so... To go in and be a part of that, my job that year was to simulate whatever the other punter was going to do every week. So I hit punt return on a Thursday into a sea breeze at the charge at, at San Diego. Uh, we were down at Mission Valley and that sea breeze ripped along that valley. And so every Thursday I had to punt into the wind and also simulate what the other punter was going to do. So I felt like that was a really good grounding as well, you know, because the, the same again, the consequences of, of messing it up were getting deported. So, you know, it was, yeah. uh, and then, you know, I had John Carney who John Carney's the leading scorer in charges history. I had John Kidd, who was a 12 year pro punter that, that started and then Brian Wagner who took over from him. And then David Bin, who ended up playing 19 years in the league, the best long snapper in the history of the league, and we were all together. So, I, I, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better bunch of guys to learn from in my first year for an Aussie that had no idea what the hell was going on. Yeah, so um, cool. you, you developed a pretty pretty strong friendship with John Carney as well, I've read. Um, I imagine back then when special teams probably wasn't as critical a part of the game as it is now, you guys had to probably band quite tightly together and just uh, do your thing while the offense and defense did theirs? Was there much of a divide yeah. between you and the other two phases or the other two groups of uh, players? No, and, that, and honestly, that came from John. You know, John had, had just broken the NFL record for the most uh, most field goals, consecutive field goals, which has now been broken and, and gone on. But at the time, he was the most accurate kicker in the NFL. And, and then one of the things he taught me, and, I, you know, I was sort of known for making tackles is, you know, you got 10 other guys that give their body up every time for you. Mm. So if you have to do it every now and then, you owe them. You To honour them, you need to go do that. And, and he goes, the other thing it'll do is if you punt a great punt in a stressful situation and you go and stick your head in there on a tackle every now and then, then you become, you'll become respected as a teammate. And they were, they already had the crazy Australian sort of attitude about, you know, crocodile Dundee, you're going to be. So when you go in and stick your head in there, they go, see, I told you it was crazy. And so yeah. it gave you a lot of credibility. And then, you know, backed up inside the, 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 
you know, five yard line or whatever, hitting a great punt in that situation. Or, you know, that's sort of how the drop punt developed as well is I didn't like watching guys hit spirals and just have it go in the end zone. And so after a couple of years, I was allowed to use that punt, but it was a, it was a respect thing where the, the defensive lineman would come out and sort of just about knock me out, hit me on the top of the helmet when you put them on the five yard line, because they love the fact that, you know, you, you were unselfish in that punt and it, and it stopped them having to line up on the 20 thinking freaking punt to put that thing in the end zone again, you know? So yeah. it was, uh, so that was why the drop punt really worked and, and sort of gave me some credibility with the team. Yeah. You said that it was a couple of years between you sort of pulling the drop punt out at practice and your special teams coach turning around saying, what are you doing that end over end thing for? You're mucking up my drills. Can you just kick the, kick the spiral? Uh, Wikipedia credits you with bringing the drop punt to the NFL. Is this true? You can be modest. Um, so, I'll always say well, so no, yes, it, it is true. But um, I, I bought it in, I played in NFL Europe and Al Luganbill was my, was my special teams coach. And he'd seen me do it at training camp. He was the San Diego State uh, University coach at the time. He'd been to training camp and he'd seen me hit those punts. So he said to me, dude, have you got any punts in Australia, you know, from Aussie rules that we could use? And I showed him that and he goes, oh, hell yeah, we're using that right now. So I got to use it in NFL Europe. I saw that it actually worked in an American game without the pressure of doing it in the NFL. And then uh, um, Frank Novak took over as our special teams coach after a couple of years. And Frank, Frank had had uh, David Wing with him when he was in, uh, in Detroit. And he goes, I had this guy, David Wing. He used to hit all these weird punts. He goes, can you hit them? I'm like, mate, all Australians can hit those. And he goes, show me. So I told him about the NFL Europe thing, and that's where, that's where it really happened. And then it went on for a few years that no one knew that I was doing that on purpose. And, and John Madden actually came up to me once in pregame, and he goes, hey, man, I've got to ask you a question. Do you mean to do that end-over-end thing inside the 10? Because it really works. And I go, I do. And he goes, well, how? Why didn't you tell me a couple of years ago? He goes, I've been saying that you shanked the punt, but it worked out right. So he, he goes, well, I thought you were doing it accidentally. So, yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's where, so you know, cool. I started it in like 1997, I think, is when we actually started using it. But I, now guys use it in way different situations than what I did. I had it, yep. you know, I would do it just over the 50 inside the 20s. Now guys hit it, you know, misdirection hits and they hit it, you know, backed up in the end zone if they need a fair catch or any of that sort of stuff. It's used way more than I would ever use it. So do you think you were the sort of the, the flag bearer for the, the growth of the punting position? Do you look at the guys like Johnny Hecker, uh, who has so many different punts, he's doing bananas, all this sort of thing, just for different spots on the field, just so the receivers and the, the opposition special team coaches don't really know how to plan for, for what's coming? Do you sort of see yourself as um, the leader in that and allowing the, the, the variety in the in the punters arsenal to sort of grow and flourish to what's been today? I mean, you know, I was just at a good time. I think punters were growing in size at that stage. When I first started, I was 6'5", Mark Royals was 6'6", and everyone else was small. So, you know, it's it, the, the size of punters changed, the, the aptitude of us changed. And I think the other thing that really changed is there's a lot of young special teams coaches now. So they've seen the evolution of the drop punt. And so they let they let special teams guys do a lot more if it benefits their team. And at the time, you know, you, you had to just do what what you were told to do. And so, you know, it, the like I had the banana kick, I had all those kicks. I was just never allowed to use them, and didn't really think, you know, past what what my regular 
part of my punting job was, which was backed up drive spirals, directional spirals, and then over the 50, the drop punts. So now these guys, like you said, Johnny Hecker uses bananas, reverse bananas, walk backs, pull backs. Uh, you know, he's got like 10 or 12 different punts. And so you're right, it just puts the punt returner on the back foot and never never allows them to, to think about what the next punt's going to be because they're all different. Yeah. Andy, I've, if I could just jump in, because I've, I've just got a, a, a really a really interesting kind of thing, um, Darren, you talk about, you know, you had all these punts, but you weren't allowed to use them. Was was the NFL, and, and we talk about on the podcast, but, you know, Staley, for example, is a very innovative, and in his first season, he went for fourth downs all the time. Um, was Is it a particularly conservative um, environment, the coach's room in, in, in this, in the NFL? Uh, and what was your experience like with the, the kind of relationship you had with the coaches? I'm just fascinated by that. It was do this um, and you can only do what I tell you or, and no room for experimentation or what, what was, what's, what's with that? What's that about? Well, so I got a little bit of latitude because obviously I came from a different game, but you know, I was panicking that I was going to get fired every day. So, you know, going outside the scope of, going outside the scope of what you were asked to do was not something you really thought about. You know, I think, like I said, there's a lot more innovation in the game. You look at the quarterback position, how different it is, you know, and you see Tom Brady to do what he did. Tom was the last guy that I played against still playing. And Drew Brees was the last guy I played with still playing. And so those guys were the tradition, you know, Drew was an undersized guy, but probably the most accurate thrower I'd ever seen of a ball. And then Tom was the a prototypical, not very uh, mobile, but great reader of defenses and throw of the ball. Now you look at guys like, you know, Jalen Hurts and, and Patrick Mahomes, and they're totally different quarterbacks. And so I think, you know, that's, I think that's the genius of, of coaches like Andy Reid is they adapt to the skills of the guys they have. So it wasn't like I was trying to be an innovator of the game. I was trying not to get fired every day for 11 years. So that doesn't allow you to really think outside the box too much. Incredible. Yeah. Um, So I mentioned uh, Wikipedia bringing the drop pun, and obviously our research went far beyond the uh, the realms of Wikipedia. But I did see something else as well there. Uh, Between the... um, you know, your first tryout with the Chargers and your week one debut in 1995, um, there must have been some incredible sort of welcome to the NFL moments from that first snap that allegedly copped you right on the nose um, to starting yep. out your NFL career in Oakland as the Raiders returned from their stint in LA. Like, talk us through, mm. you know, maybe less so the the potential broken nose, but what was it like playing your first game for the Chargers against a division rival as they returned to their home city. What was that like? Was it all just sort of caught up in the moment and you couldn't really appreciate what it is when you look back now? Or I think the great thing about it was I didn't understand the tradition as much as the guys that played it, you know? So I'm like, eh, we go to Oakland, we go play against the Raiders. I heard they're a pretty good team, you know? But then that week, the week of the game, Coach Prief is like, we're, okay, so Tim Brown is a Hall of Famer. He's the... He, he was the and Albert Lewis was the best punt blocker in the NFL uh, at the time. And so uh, both of them, you know, he's like, you need to get that thing off fast. It's got to, there's no chance you're going to take, and he was like writing me about getting the ball off. And so I had, uh, my get-offs were like 0.9, and I think I averaged 44 yards along the ground. There was no, there was no hang times in my first game. And then the other thing, if you, if you see the game, 
the Raiders still had the Oakland A's uh, baseball field. So it was slippery as heck out on that field. Yeah. You know, we had the Chargers had one. Uh, the 49ers were still playing at, at the baseball field. And uh, uh, so was Miami, you know. And so you tell guys nowadays that we used to play on a, like a concrete hard baseball field and they laugh at you. But you see those old games and, you know, right down the middle of the hashes was at the Raiders and then also at the Chargers. One end of the field was all baseball. So, you know, I was sliding all over the place. So there was no way I was going to hit those punts up in the air. And I was no way Albert Lewis was going to touch any of those, any of the get-offs. So I got lucky. They gave me a second week after the first one. Chuck said to me, he goes, you averaged 44 yards. That was the ugliest 44 I've ever seen, but it worked, you know. And so <laughs> fortunately for me, they gave me – I got a week two out of it anyway. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's let's fast forward briefly to um, week five of that 1995 season. Um, you laid 24 tackles in your 78 AFL games, but you laid the absolute hit on Andre Hastings at Heinz Field. What was going through your mind in the – like the before, during, and after that, and how did that sort of, I don't know, gain the respect of your your locker room when you've laid out a a returner saving a touchdown? First of all, I reckon twenty four tackles in my AFL career is very generous. <laughs> yeah, they're short. I can't remember any of them. I don't know if Champion Data was working back then, but <laughs> it wasn't the job of the key forward. What, if, you, okay. if you had it. Ha- that's right. If you added ha- how many handballs and how many bounces, I would still be at 24 as well. I think I'd have to like a handball in a game. So, so the, the thing about Andre Hastings is uh, uh, the, week, the week before, Rich Camarillo was punting at Arizona and uh, Andre Hastings had run right over the top of him for a touchdown. And so I, I crushed the punt. It was a great punt. It was probably 63 or 64 yards. And as I was running down, sort of going, hey, that was a pretty good punt. I look up and there was a massive gap right in the middle of the return. And I'm thinking, oh, God, he's coming right up that hole. So I took off as fast as I could, try to fill that hole. And he did. He came straight up the hole. And then he thought, oh, I'm just going to run over the punter again. Well, I had no idea what I was doing. I'm just coming in. I was upset and I had steam coming out my ears, zero breaks. And he just ran right into me and I was like, perfect. So I clotheslined him and then, you know, became a thing after the game. But, you know, it was, it was, uh, yeah, all I could do was get him on the ground. I was pretty upset on the return at the time. Yeah, well, that's, cool. that's exactly it. That's your net punt yards down the toilet. But that clothesline was WWE wrestling stuff. Very impressed. <laughs> and, 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 well, and, and when we went to, the, when I went to the Pro Bowl that, well, and when I went to the Pro Bowl that year, Andre Hastings voted for me because he's like, I don't know who that guy from Australia was, but I'm voting for him. So I, I, got, I got his vote for the Pro Bowl that year. Yeah. <laughs> That's so <laughs> That's cool. That's fantastic. Uh, pro Football Reference has you having attempted one pass in your career and one rush attempt. Um, decorated punting career, but as far as. Um, you know, using you a little bit differently on special teams, do you think your coaches missed a trick by not incorporating more Danit, Darren Bennett trick plays under centre? Did you have any discretion at all for seeing a certain look on the field? Zero discretion. Uh, when in doubt, <laughs> oh, pump, no. pump the football. When in no doubt, pump the football. When in any yeah. doubt, pump the football. Yeah. Uh, I can't That's remember right. that. I can't remember that. So I can't remember the pass. I, I don't know what um, the pass it was, is and I don't I know believe- what the rush is. I believe it was an incompletion in 2003, but this is purely off uh, just football reference. So just thought that might have triggered something. Never Obviously, it wasn't. My whole career. Oh, we'll correct him. <laughs> oh, really? There you go. PFF needs a, yeah. needs a kick up. Never the threw a pass, never, ra- never rush for a yard. Never. Just kick it. 
just kick it and clothesline. That's that's just good. Stay, yeah. stay, in your, stay in your lane, essentially. It's uh, not bad. Hundred percent in my um, lane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it was uh, it was a fantastically decorated career with your excessive hang time, um, your sheer number of punts. Um, you think I think you had three blocked punt attempts or something over the the eleven years you played in the league. Um, how was it? for you to be awarded uh, the honours of the all-decade team in the 1990s and then to be elevated into the Chargers Hall of Fame in 2012? So both really tremendous honours. The, the all-decade team, 1990s, I had, I really didn't understand what that meant at the time. You know, I do now. You're only there for five uh, years of that decade. Yeah, it was – It was. Uh, yeah, I really – you know, that was – it was to even be recognised. You know, the first year when I was punting – to have Junior Sayo even know my name was was pretty special. So to be recognised in in the NFL decade team with Junior was uh, was awesome. Uh, and then the the uh, once again, you know, my name on the Ring of Honor is next to Junior's, and that's uh, yeah. you know he was larger than life, and and uh, you know very sad when we lost him. But he he was you know I watched Junior. Uh, how hard he worked and and what a, an inspiration he was. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever met anyone like him and I don't think I ever will again. That that ties in perfectly with my next question because you, you did have the opportunity to play with some Chargers greats over your nine seasons there, um, none probably greater than, than Junior. Do you, do you have any, any great stories for Chargers fans um, regarding the great man? Well, I mean, any there was a game with Rod- when Rodney Harrison mm-hmm. – when Rodney Harrison was uh, – Still playing safety. We had a game against uh, the Cincinnati Bengals, and Rodney and Junior probably had five of the biggest, like best hits of your career, all in the third and fourth quarter. To the point where the running backs and the wide receivers and the tight ends did not want to catch a pass because they knew Rodney and Junior were behind them. And so uh, I've never seen someone play the game with such vigor and speed as Junior. And it's just incredible. It was incredible to watch. And then the other thing, respect for Junior, we played at uh, the Sydney Olympic Stadium against Denver in preseason. And he said to me, I want the full Australian experience. What what do you need me to do? And he asked me uh, what he could do to help promote the game in Australia. And we, we did a big thing before the game. And Junior came, no cost, didn't, he never asked for any money, and he came and spoke to the crowd. And because no one in Australia had seen an athlete like Junior Sale before, so you know he was a he was a tremendous teammate, a great person. And Oceanside in California is you know has uh, has lost one of their giants because it's you know it's sad. It's been ten years now since he's gone. It's crazy. It's been that long. Yeah, time time does fly. Um, but it's so great that he's just uh, left such a lasting imprint on. Chargers fans and football fans across the world um, for everything that he was on the field and everything that he was off the field. Um, all right, just before we move over to Jack, similar to Al, a uh, couple of quick fire questions just off the cuff, Darren. Um, yep. I think you've answered the first one, the hardest hitter you ever saw. Is it one of the two you've yeah. just mentioned? Yeah, Junebug and Hot Rod. Yeah, yeah Rodney. Yeah. I don't think Rodney knew what the offense was, what his defense hot was, Rod. but he was coming angry. He was coming angry to every contact. So that was Hot Rod. <laughs> Yeah, hot rod. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. The most, the hardest trainer that you played with. 
Uh, that would be John Perella. Uh, I always tell the story. Uh, I was in icing my knees after a game or after practice, and John came out and said, hey, uh, can you come and help me? And I walked in, and he had 715 pounds on an incline press, and he wanted me to hold the 25s on the end because he'd run out of bar to put 45s on, and he taped, taped them on. And then he sat and sat on the hammer press and did 715-pound inclines. So one of the strongest <laughs> men I'd ever seen. Anytime you had anytime you had enter Sandman playing in the locker room, you don't go in there because you spend the whole time taking weights off all the machines because John was in there. So oh, yeah, wow. he was probably fantastic. And then I we had another guy in the first team named Ronnie Harmon, who was one of our running backs. And Ronnie yep. said he grew up in Queens, New York, and he said my father got up at five o'clock in the morning every day to go to work. So he would go in. He had his own. He could get into the locker room by himself, and he would lift before everyone else at five o'clock in the morning. So he was his his. Uh, you know, you, you pat him on the back. It's like knocking on wood. He was so solid. So I think Ronnie Harmon was probably one of the hardest guys I've ever worked with. All right. Uh, who was the most talented athlete that you played with or against or both? Randy Moss. I was at. Uh, I played with Randy at Minnesota, and I played against Randy when we were at San Diego. And I still remember uh, Jeff George, who was a not a good reader of defenses, but he was a wonderful thrower of the football. Uh, he was in shotgun, and he and he fumbled the snap, and he just picked it up, and he threw it away in the corner of the end zone, or we thought he threw it away. Yeah. And as the ball comes down, Randy Moss just caught up to it from like seventy yards away, and we're going. And so then I watched him practice every day for two years when I was at the Vikings and I could see he just, he played the whole game at 80% speed and then just turned it up to a hundred for like 10 yards and he would get a gap on a receiver, on a, a, a DB. And I'd never seen someone with that. Randy's, Randy's choice was to either go and be Usain Bolt or play in the NFL. He was that fast. It was Amazing. crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. His catch radius just was like none other. Um, where he'd pluck the balls from. That's a, a great answer. Um, the best leader that you played with? The best leader. Junior was a great leader. I mean, he really was. You know, he, he would – I still remember uh, pre-game, he, he would stand up and he would get goosebumps from adrenaline because he would, he would yell and spike so much. And he said – and I think it was that Cincinnati game, and he said, if you want to see how linebackers played, just follow me out the door. And, was, and we were all like three feet off the ground going out behind him and he just went out there and just turned it on. So, you know, yeah, Junior was, I mean, if, if you're talking about, if you're talking about, uh, you know, NFL football, Junior, if you're talking about AFL, Jimmy Steins. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, oh, God, you're talking about just running out of the race with Junior Sowers, making all the hairs on the back, on my back stand up. It's, um, Got it yeah. now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, if, you, if you had hair, it would. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, a couple more. Uh, did you have a teammate in the Chargers or Vikings locker room that provided the best Aussie accent? Oh, God. So David Bean used to try it all the time. David Bean used to try to hit the drop punt. You know, on Mondays we do we do a recovery session and we'd go out and I'd take a Sharon out and I'd punt it around and we'd, we'd do like triangle triangle kicking drills with John Carney and David Bean. So he, he would try to do Aussie Aussie accents, but I mean that's pretty tough. That's pretty he wasn't he wasn't great at it. So yeah, big Dave. I, I love Dave like a little brother. He's a good he's a good fellow. We played all, my whole career, then he snapped Mike Cypher's whole career as well. So he was yeah, terrific right. at what he did, you know. Back to back two of the best punters the Chargers have had. Or the two best punters yeah. the Chargers have had. Um 
Uh, I'm actually just going to go back because <laughs> I've got a note here that I, I've I've seen you quoted as saying um, on that hit on uh, Andre Hastings. Uh, I'm an Aussie mate. The only thing I like to send into the air and have returned to me is a boomerang. Uh, couldn't couldn't be playing the part as of an Aussie abroad any better. Um, great gear by you. <laughs> I just uh, wanted to. Okay. Um... <laughs> I want to know where that quote came from because I can't remember saying that. <laughs> Probably the same place that we that we read that you uh, threw a pass and went for a rush. So yeah, that's um... right. The mist grows. Yeah, that's right. Um, last one before uh, we've actually got a couple of uh, questions from fans and friends of the show that I'm going to play you. Um, but the, the most fiery coach, you had a few head coaches at the Chargers. Um, who was the most fiery that you that you had? Look, I, I think Marty Schottenheimer was a pretty fiery coach. Mike Tice at the Vikings was a pretty fiery coach. Oh, yeah. Marty would Marty would get fired up. And then Marty would sort of get a tear in his eye and then he'd go, oh, I love you guys. He would cry every time pregame, right? <laughs> oh so goodness. Marty would get he would I get his so fired up and then he Yeah, so he's uh Marty was great. and Marty Marty had done it well wherever he went for twenty five years, you know. And so uh I, I liked having Marty. Marty had you know, the inside the locker room conversation. And then he had the, he used to call the media. He goes, oh, it's, it, let me feed the chickens. He goes, I'll give them a little bit of food here and a little bit of food there, but you guys don't need to say anything about what's going on. So there was always what was going on in the locker room and then the real story that the media got. And that was Marty just feed, feeding the chickens, he used to call. It was great. Yeah, that's, cool. that's good. All right, a couple of questions from some of the friends of the show. I'm going to play a couple of videos for you and some questions that uh, follow. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm David Drogemeyer, one of the co-hosts of the Lockdown Chargers podcast. I want to give a huge shout-out to the Thunder Down Under podcast, Alistair, Jack, and Andy, for giving me the opportunity to ask a question to Chargers legend Darren Bennett. Darren, here is my question. Which one of your teammates holds the record for the most beers consumed on a flight? <laughs> Looking forward to this answer. This should be good. <laughs> So I'm, I'm going to say it wasn't on a flight. It was uh, so Drew Brees and I, after mini camp, we uh, organized a half day fishing boat and San Diego is well known for its tuna fleet and, and its fishing fleet. So we're like, okay, let's we'll ta as a, as a team building thing after mini camp, the day after we'll go out fishing. And so it goes out at 12 o'clock. You get back at six. Uh, we had a couple of teammates who'd never been in the ocean before throwing up at the bait receiver, which was in the middle of the San Diego Bay. And Corey Raymer, Corey Raymer drank 50 beers in six hours. What? So I'd, I'd never beers. seen that. Now, I will tell you, they were cause lights. So yeah. they're, they're, beer, they're beer adjacent, right? So they're sort of beers. <laughs> but he would. Beer adjacent. So I can't even I can't even show you how to do it. But what he would do is he had a sweater and he would tie it in a knot on one side that made like a pocket and he'd put half a dozen in there and he'd be halfway through a beer and he'd get a bite. And we were having a great day. We were catching bass and we were catching barracuda and stuff. Every time he got a bite, he would neck the rest of the beer, crack it and throw it in the bin, hook the fish and bring it in. So, yeah, during the day, uh, Derek Smith is a mate of his. Derek played at the Chargers, but at the time he was at the Washington at uh, Washington Commanders. Now the Redskins at the time, and he goes, "Dude, Corey's drunk fifty beers." I go, "No chance." I go in his tab. They were, two, they were at that time two bucks a beer, hundred bucks, fifty beers. <laughs> wow, that's uh, oh. 
They they do say though that American beer is quite like sex in a canoe. It's bloody close to water or fucking it close is, to water. Yeah, but, close. Uh... Yeah, well, I wasn't sure if you were allowed to say that, and that's a, that's an old Monty Python <laughs> joke. But yes, very good. Yeah, yeah, it is. No, we can say whatever we want. Um, oh, we're big boys here. <laughs> All right, last uh, last question from uh, our friend, great friend of the show, Kyle. Here we go. Hi, Darren. My name's Kyle Dedimanicantanio, and I am a writer for SB Nation's Bolts from the Blue fan page. I'm also a LaCosta Canyon Maverick, which I know means something to you. I was a big fan of yours growing up and really appreciated that you had a year with Mike Cyphers to take him under your wing and show him the ropes before he ultimately took the mantle. Um, as we saw when Mike left and Drew Kayser came on, we didn't have that transition and Kayser didn't have a successful of a career. I was wondering if you think that is something that we should see more of in the NFL, if having a year of mentorship can help some of these punters who are often kind of left to their own devices out there. Uh, if I have time for a bonus question, I'd love to hear any David Ben stories you have and would love to hear you expand on how important that role is as well. You know, I remember it, I think it was 2010 when David Ben went down with an injury for the first time in his career, it seemed like the wheels came off the team. So anxious to hear what you have to say, Darren, hope you're having a great day and thanks for everything you do for chargers and for what you've done in the north county san diego community as well have a great one well yeah go mavs i mean that's uh my sons both went to la costa canyon and uh i coached with one and the other one played uh it's funny enough i was just having that conversation with mike cypress this morning so mike one of our Australian guys that played uh, at Carolina a couple of years ago, Lachlan Edwards, uh, who's a guy that I've sort of mentored and been a part of his career at the Jets and also uh, at Carolina. Mike was his kicking coach for the whole year. And Lachlan said what a great thing it was to have Mike pass his knowledge on. And I sort of felt like that was full circle for me as I'd helped Mike when he first started. Steve Christie and I did. And then Mike is now passing it on. So I actually talked to Mike Today, we talk once, probably once a month, and he's going to be the kicking assistant at UCLA and also at the Rams when they need him. When Mike Kaiser came in, Mike and I both tried to help him, and he refused uh, you know, the, the assistance. And Mike realized that what we did for him was invaluable. But the time, at the time, uh, the coaches and those guys thought that we were going to mess him up and they didn't realize the, the knowledge that we were trying to pass on to him. And so uh, that, was, that was something that we both tried very hard and have tried with all the punters since Mike retired. And fortunately this year, uh, you know, J.K. Scott has gone in last season and it was the first time in a few years we felt like the punting situation was a good situation. And then this year I met Cameron Dicker at a, at a – uh, an MS event in Austin, Texas. He lives there in the off season and he's a wonderful young man. And and he and Dustin Hopkins, I think will compete for that job. And so I feel like with, with Josh Harris and, and JK Scott and all those guys, I feel like special teams is finally in a position where yeah. they're going to be a good yeah. special teams this year. And then my David Bin story is we used to go on special teams in the morning and just up the road from us was stadium golf. And David Bin is a scratch golfer. And so after special teams meetings, we had a couple of hours before a walkthrough, I would sneak up to Starbucks and go get a coffee or something like that. But David would go up to stadium golf and hit a bucket of balls. And we never let the coaches know we we're allowed to do it. We had Wayne Sevier was one of our special teams coaches and he was a big golfer. He knew Dave would do it. 
But one year they had a million dollar hole in one at Stadium Golf. And Dave's like, nah, I'm here. I'll have a go. And he made the final, which was televised. And all of a sudden, like, how the hell does David Bin have enough time to go shoot bucket a ball? But every morning he, he would go past, you know, and then he'd come back for Starbucks, we'd have a coffee and we'd go back for the walkthrough. So, yeah, Dave was straight after practice going down and hitting and working on his golf game while the rest of the boys were in meetings. There you go. Awesome. Well, thanks to both Dave Drogamai and Carl Dominicantanio for taking the time to chuck some questions your way. Um, good friends of the show. We love having them on and, Kyle's contribution as well to uh, Super Bowl Nation and Bolts from the Blue. Jack, I'm going to throw over to you for Life yeah. Post NFL. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, Kyle's question was a great segue and you talk about mentoring, Darren. I, I'm really interested in how you kind of transitioned from your AFL and your NFL career and what your thought process um, was behind getting into coaching and mentoring. Now, the research that we've done apparently is not very good, but I, I did look at something that said you you worked as a, as a youth counsellor, I think, in your early AFL career. I'm, I'm not sure whether that's right. And did that kind of influence your decision to get into coaching and mentoring um, the, the Aussie guys coming over? Yeah, and it really, I mean, I had some really good mentors in my career. I had a lot of injuries. And so there was, you know, it started with a guy named Harry Neesham. The Neesham family is famous in East Fremantle. And, and you know, he, he took me under his wing a little bit when I was injured. Then I had, you know, Tom Hodges and Ron Alexander and obviously uh, Chris Jones when I was at Melbourne. Mm. And so, you know, when I first moved from Perth, I was looking, you know, at the time, being an AFL player was not a full-time job. And so I thought I'd, I'd go and try and find a job. So I went into the old CES, which is, I think, is Centrelink nowadays in Australia. Mm. I was looking on the boards and this guy came up to me and he goes, Darren, what are you doing? And I said, I'm looking for a job. He goes, oh, come with me. So I, I worked part-time at the CES and I ended up in the Youth Access Centre uh, working with a lot of youth. And, and I, I could see what a benefit it was to just pass some knowledge on to some of these kids. And, how, and this was in a job situation. But how I started mentoring players over here was – you know, what, years ago, uh, there was a kid at Arizona, University of Arizona, on a full-ride scholarship, got, got um, homesick, gave up his scholarship and went home. And at the time, the guys playing in the NFL, Ben Graham, Sab Rocker, Matt McBriar and myself, all committed to let's never have that happen again. And so over the years, I've had probably 100 guys stay at our house, whether it was in mm. San Diego and here. And, you know, I know you guys are going to – get on to talking about my son, Will, who, you know, when we were at La Costa Canyon, we had a free run of the, of the stadium there. And so anyone that was staying with us would, would come to practice and, and they'd watch my, my La Costa Canyon kids would watch an NFL punter come out, whether it be Ben Graham or, or uh, um, Sav Rocker or any of those guys that were staying with us and bomb punts. And it was a wonderful thing to watch these kids because then they'd go back and play, you know, they'd see them on Monday Night Football or whatever, you know. So so we, we've we uh, – Dwayne Armstrong, who used to run the NFL in Australia, and Sav and myself and a guy over here, Aaron Perez, uh, we sort of put a group together of guys that – you know, there's a group in Australia that send kids over uh, and, and some of the kids don't want to go through that group. And so, you know, Sav coaches them, Dwayne organises it in Australia and then Aaron and I sort of support those boys over here. And, uh, you know, I actually have a kid, an Aussie kid from Melbourne coming tomorrow night to stay with us for a couple of nights before he goes to camp up in uh, Michigan, up upstate Michigan. 
Fantastic. And, you know, over the, over the year, we'll have four or five guys. So my son Thomas punted here at Tulsa, and we had an Aussie kid named Lachlan Wilson from Melbourne take over, and he's just transferred to Cal Berkeley. So they sort of become – we become sort of surrogate parents for those boys when they don't have a big enough gap to go home to Melbourne in their breaks. They come and spend time with us. And Rosemary Cooksman, she's a farm girl from Bendigo, so she cooks them up a big meal. And, and when, uh, you know, with Will – Will was sort of taught him about life and I taught him about punting. So we felt like we had a pretty good uh, setup here. Awesome. Lots of trip, lots of trips to Costco, I hear as well, uh, in the, <laughs> yes. to, get, to get the food. Um, yes. it's, it's, it's sort of a, I'm, I'm also quite interested in, so what actually goes into, what work do you do with the guys that come over? Now, you, you talked a lot about uh, how Chris Jones influenced your strength and conditioning when you had those knee injuries. And, um, you know, that obviously you're working on bananas and pocket and drive punts and trying to get that 1.4 seconds off. And in the NFL, I think it's 1.25. What other yeah. what other stuff do you do? Is there a lot of strength and conditioning work that the punters have to do? I'm, I've noticed that, they're, you know, guys tear groins or they've got a little bit of an issue in the, in the um, NFL. Um, what, what goes into punting craft, I guess? So it's it's less of an athletic thing and more and more of an artistic sort of flexibility thing. So you know you do a lot of muscle specific plyometrics and and balance stuff. Uh, and over the years, the AFL games changed so much that the Australians coming across don't really have the same leg swing that I had or Sav has. You know that that big forward, like I said, with limited skills like we used to have, it doesn't exist in the game, and particularly at the AFL level. The guys that are six foot five like me were probably a lot, they're a lot leaner than I was and they run a lot further. So the, the leg swing is sort of more of a broken turn leg swing, which works great for the drop pump, but doesn't work well for the spiral. So we try to teach all the boys all of those skills. So it's a lot of extra flexibility with those guys. And then it's just repetition, just hitting a lot of punts, working on your drop, making sure you're consistent with that thing. Because, you know, in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt, anyone can look great. But once we put you under pressure, a helmet and shoulder pads, and a bunch of guys 15 yards away saying they're going to rip your head off, things change a little bit. So, you know, we try to pass on some of that knowledge like we did with Mike Cyprus at the Chargers. And, you know, those kids come and spend time with us and then they they go off and we get to live vicariously through them in in their college careers, which is great to watch. I was just going to say, do you you find that there's um, a difference with how you sort of change or like guide these Aussie guys into getting into the NFL, whether they're young, like early twenties and may have played a little bit of junior footy um, or guys compared to guys who might be in their later twenties who have played five or six years in the AFL. Like, do you think that the way that the AFL games played now, as you've said with the biomechanics behind the kicking style and needing to run after you kick to get to the next contest, is there much of a, a shift? Do you have to rework all of their kind of their kicking styles? Yeah, so if you look at the guys that are in right now, you know, you've got uh, you've got Michael Dixon up at Seattle, has a very non-traditional leg swing, but it works for him. Cam Johnson, when Cam, Cam came and did his pro day with me after his, his career at Ohio State, and then it took him a whole year to retool that leg swing to where he could be consistent. He had power and he hit the ball beautifully, but it was just uh, a bit of a broken leg swing, which worked for the drop punt, which is what he did most of the time in Ohio State. And then you look at Jordan Berry. Jordan Berry spent a whole year uh, retooling his leg swing, understanding that 
you know, you have to hit the spiral in in the game in the in the NFL game. And then Mitch Wisnowski, I haven't had anything to do with Mitch from Perth, but Mitch had to do the same thing. And so, you know, the guys that have been successful are the ones that are either prepared to spend a year retooling their leg swing. Yep. Or, or guys that understand that they have to do it somewhere during their college career and build that that resume. And you see guys that come out that really only traditionally drop punt, and in their first year they just don't look any good. They go to combines and stuff like that, and then they try to spiral, but they haven't done it. So we try to teach those kids from a young age, and some get it, some don't. The first thing we tell them is, I'm not coaching you to the NFL. And the reason is, if your only, if your only motivation is to play in the NFL – 999 guys will fail. Yeah. One, one succeeds out of a thousand. And so we always trying to tell the boys, enjoy your college career. It's the time of your life. I wish I'd spent time in college, 25 years of age with an Aussie accent. Come on. It's, I mean, it doesn't get you better than that. So enjoy it. Fish in a barrel. Get yourself, <laughs> well, and so get, get yourself an American, American degree, because if you've ever been to the doctors in Australia, look behind the doctor. He's all got, all of those guys have had yeah. American experience. Experience, right, So it's a great thing to get is an American degree. And then someone else will tell you whether you're good enough to play in the NFL. Everyone wants to play in the NFL, but most guys don't get, don't get tapped to play. So work on your craft that you may want to go to the next level, but enjoy it while you're playing in college. Because some of these college programs are as big or bigger than being in the NFL. Yeah, oh, it's a, it's amazing. The the work that you're doing with you know punters just in general and your knowledge is is quite incredible. Now, you you did um, touch earlier that um you know we know that your son who um tragically passed away in 2020, um he was a beloved special teams coach uh, at the Laco- at Lacosta Canyon, uh, the Mavericks. Um, is uh, just I guess um this is a chance to talk about. Is there anything that our listeners um can do to support or raise awareness around uh, muscular dystrophy, um or just a, just a chance for you to sort of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, William uh, was diagnosed when he was six and he, he passed away at the age of 25 and it's coming up on two years when it's still it's still sort of raw for us, you know. And so the great thing was when uh, when Thomas first and Will started at La Costa Canyon, the head coach was a guy named Sean Sovercole and, and we're like family. He's a wonderful man, son of a lieutenant colonel in the Marines and we, we met and he said, you know, I would love you to come and help out with our kids. And I said, look, my son coaches NFL punters. He teaches those guys. Will had such a great eye for punting and kicking. He would not say, I overtalk when I coach. Will wouldn't say a thing. He'd let that guy hit four or five bad punts and then he'd sneak up to me and go, go tell him he's doing this. And he, he would always see something different to me. He had such a great eye for punting and kicking. And so, and I'll tell you a story about Will in a minute. But so Sean Sovercole came up and said, I'm going to ask Will to be uh, a coach on the football team. And as a freshman, the seniors do not respect the freshman, that kid. You know, you were just a young kid and you have to earn your right. Right from day one, all the kids realized that Will knew what he was talking about. And so Sean went up and said, Will, I want you to be a coach on the team. And he was known as Coach B from that day on. And so all his email and everything was Coach B at Lacosta Canyon LCC. And so the, the uh, most inspirational award at La Costa Canyon on the football team is the Will Bennett Inspiration Award. And I'll never forget what they did for him. It was awesome. So so what we used to do is we, we would do some charity events and uh, for a, a group called Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy. They fund research into adenovirus research and exon skipping research and a lot of stuff that helps MD. And unfortunately, Will's generation, he was too far advanced to take adva- advantage of that and his genetic deletions didn't allow that. 
but they're doing some great work. So it's uh, parent project is the is the uh, is the foundation. And yeah. so if anyone wanted to, you know, investigate it more, uh, I'd love them to do it. They're wonderful people, and the lady. Um, who runs it? She had two boys with muscular dystrophy as well, so she knows. You know, she knows the journey we've all been on. And we can put a link uh, to that in our video description as well. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, and it was it was wonderful to to be you know to pass on the knowledge of that we grew that we learned with with the research and all that sort of stuff, and hopefully some generation of boys you know down the track will benefit from it. So uh, my quick will story was Matt McBriar, who Matt wasn't one of the guys that played in the NFL, but he had a 10-year career at the at the Cowboys and actually ended his career at the Chargers, which was sort of hilarious because I was coaching Matt from up in the stands during Charger games. He would miss hit a punt or he would do something he didn't like. And we had this weird hand thing of like, was it inside, outside, what? And people would think that he was having a fit on the sideline, but I was way up in the stands going, no, you were inside, you were outside. And and so it was wonderful. But when Matt got injured at, the, at Dallas, he, he sort of had a nerve injury in his plant foot and he got drop foot. And so he asked me to bring Will out and Will tell him how his technique was different after the surgery, before the surgery, so that he could – and Will had three things that Matt was doing he didn't know about because Will had a photographic memory to, for technique and he goes, last time he would do this and this and this and when he, now he's doing this and this and he made the adjustments and Matt got two more years in the NFL because of that. So, you know, it was, it was, it was wonderful to, to, to coach with him and it was one of the joys of my life to be able to do it. Oh, as a, for me, I'm, I'm a father-to-be very in the next couple of weeks um, and also work with youth. So to, to hear you talk about your, your son like that and, and the work that you do with, with, with young kids and teenagers and young men is really inspiring. So thank you very much for sharing that, and um, and, and it, it really, yeah, it really means a lot um, for for us for us to, to hear that too. Now, I guess to sort of end the show, Darren, do you want to? We've got a sort of what we do a, is a famous uh, called the Thunder Down Under Aussie Quiz, um, and we love asking Americans uh, some very difficult questions and them getting zero out of four. Uh, <laughs> But so I'll tell so, you, this is my this is my 50-50 year. So I've been 50% of my life in America. This is my 50-50 okay. year. So I'm a, I'm sort of as much American as I am Australian. So I'll probably go over four on these questions. <laughs> I haven't been there for 30 years, mate. Oh well, no, you, you're all, you're always being Aussie to us. So um, Andy, Andy, you've you've got your first question there, uh, and what is it relating to? All right, Darren, which two Australian athletes? have lit the Olympic flame for games held in Australia? <sighs> Kathy Freeman? No? Yes? Yep. Uh, Dawn Fraser. Ooh. Dawn Fraser? No. It was – got another one? No. Uh, it, it was Ron Clark for the 1956 uh, we give you, we give you, we give you 0.5 give you a point for that one yeah that's almost so, that's almost leading so, in the seven aussie quizzes we've done so, so it was a bit it was a bit stupid of me because the first game was in the first games were in 56 and i don't think dawn fraser swam until the 60s so it was a bit dumb of me anyway <laughs> that's all right, all no, right. We've, all been, we've all been getting our info from the same source an absolute junk one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh all right so i've got this one now the, the question is how many players have won three Brownlow Medal Awards? So I'm not looking for the names, but if you've got a name, you can get a bonus point. But how many players have won three Brownlow Medal Awards? So I'm going to say Bobby Skilton was one of them. Correct. So there's a point. Uh, I'm going to say, oh, gosh. So I'm going to say three. Whoa, and Bobby Skilton was, was one of them. 
It was. It's actually four. Um, oh, oh, so you wow. got. Yeah, you got Bob's. I didn't know that. I thought it was three two. But you've got Hayden Bunton from Fitzroy. You've got Dickie yeah. Reynolds from Essendon. Uh, you've got Bobby from South, from South, and you've got Ian Stewart from St Kilda and Richmond. So there you go. That's, yeah. So I was going to say Ian Stewart, but I didn't. I couldn't remember his name. But yes, yeah, so I knew there was someone from St Kilda and Richmond. Half, half a point for that too. So you're on one. No, no, yeah, so no I don't out. get half a point. Yeah, no, don't be hard <laughs> on me. Don't throw me softballs. <laughs> okay. Well, this one's what an Aussie. What you're still Australian, mate. Oh, that is yeah. Australian through and through, it, right it's there. It's an response. Nothing for until sure. we absolutely <sighs> deserve it. Well, how's yeah, your geography? Exactly. How's your geography, Darren? Because we always throw a geography oh. question in, and here's one for you. Right. Okay, I love geography. Am I good at it? Probably not. Okay. Complete this statement. The Torrens is to Adelaide as the Swan is to Perth. The Yarra is to Melbourne as the Watt is to Hobart. Uh, oh, come on, Darren. No, I should know that because my, my old boss, Gavin, lives on the river. No, I'm done. Sorry, boys. That is okay. It's the Derwent River, and that's a little homage uh, to Jack's fiancée, Beck, who's a Tasmanian. Sorry, Beck. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> for some reason, I was going to say the bar one, and I'm like, no, that's down Geelong. Stop it. Yeah. Oh, bar one heads. Yeah. yeah. All right. The Derwent. There you go. Last question. Sorry to the question. Phoebe brothers as well. <laughs> yeah, the Phoebes. If you're uh, listening. Yeah. Oh, the Phoebe <laughs> brothers. Boy, that's taking uh, Question number four, the last question for you, Darren. In what two years were you the leading goal kicker for the Melbourne Football Club? Bonus points if you get the correct number of goals in each of these seasons. Oh, one of them wasn't many. 87, 91 and 90. Oh, 1989, you kicked 34 goals. Uh, and 1990, you kicked 87. So oh, pretty okay. Close. Well, there you go. Close. Been gone 30 years, boys. Yeah, it's probably good <laughs> that you didn't did, get that did one, right? I didn't give a crap about it at the time. So. Yeah, uh, that's good. good. We just thought we'd see if you just sort of checked your, checked your stats every now and then. But it's good to <laughs> no. see you. Don't. Good <laughs> no. to see you. Don't. <laughs> uh, the, only stat, the only stat I care about is bra- two brand new replaced knees that I'm, uh, I'm, f- I'm finally walking better than the last 20 years. So that's the only one I care oh, about is two nice. new knees. Excellent. I'm, uh, I'll, be in, I'll be in the, uh, the market for a new knee soon enough uh, myself. But uh, well, yeah, do, it, do it early. Yeah. Uh, good to hear that, uh, that it pays off and uh, you're feeling a bit better. Yeah. Look, mate, um, we won't keep you any longer. Thank you so much again yeah, for your time. You. As you can hear, guys, good listening, you, um, a legend for the Chargers uh, and the NFL um, from Australia to the States, doing what, what he's treat. done and more than a legend um, for everything that he's done off the field, for the countless time that he devotes to young guys coming across, mm. to everything he's done for his for the local community there. Um and with your son and with awareness to muscular dystrophy. Darren, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. You're a lovely, lovely man, and thank you for for the chat. It's been great. Good on you, boys. Appreciate it. Thanks All righty, so guys. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll see you next time on the Thunderdown Underchargers football podcast. Give the show a like and subscribe if you haven't already. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Bye.
Backpedals looking, firing. He's got Floyd turning. Got it! Zigzag! 10, 5, high step, touchdown! San Diego! <laughs> Woo! Good night! Good night to all!